Do the little things really matter? They say that you never can tell the impact of a friendly smile or a loving gesture, but does that really make a difference? Is it really worth it? Perhaps those little efforts can change the whole universe. Welcome to Consciously, a podcast focused on honest conversation by regular people and for regular people seeking spiritual growth. Hey there, Consciously, it's Menachem Poznanski. I'm really excited to present to you today the 10th episode in our OG Wisdom interview series. Today, I'm happy to present to you Mr. Yudi Wiener. Yudi has a master's degree in clinical school psychology and is a certified addictions professional. Yudi worked in organizations like Yatscan, which is a Jewish rehab, um, Mask, Madragos, uh, as well as Jax. He's also a recovery coach and spent many, many years in private practice working with individuals seeking recovery as well as their families. Yudi also spent some time working in, down in South Florida at some rehabs, including Karen Foundation and others. And he currently lives in New Shalayim, where he's in partial retirement, where he does work with certain yeshivas and seminaries. He, and he works, uh, has a private practice with an emphasis on addictions and working with the at-risk youth population. Uh, Yudi has been a mentor of mine for my entire career. Uh, he's always a, a calming and positive influence, encouraging and supportive, uh, with a focus on mindfulness, meditation, and gratitude. And I'm really excited to present this interview to you today. So here he is. Hi, Menachem. Thank you so much for joining us. This is great. This is a long time in coming, long time in planning. So grateful to have you with us. Uh, it's a little bit nerve-wracking for me to have a mentor of mine who uh, has really guided me in the uh, in my chosen field of work for the last, it's been probably 16, 17, 18 years and uh, that we've known each other. And uh, you were nice enough to be nice to me when I was a new, fresh uh, whippersnapper, probably too smart for my own good. And uh, you've been a mentor of mine for a long time, so I'm so excited to introduce you to everybody. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So uh, if you could just give the audience a sense of who you are, if they haven't you know, met you before, don't know your background. Hi, my name is uh, Yuri Wiener. I am a current living, um, beautiful life in Yerushalayim. I grew up in Brooklyn, uh, a uh, product of Chaim Berlin yeshivas and Samaritan yeshivas. Uh, my father was a rabbi. Um, at, uh, when I finished high school, I was one of the pioneers who came to learn in Eretz Yisrael in 1964. And I bounced around to many yeshivas, experimenting uh, with um, the proper place for me. I came back from Eretz Yisrael, and I did a stint in Eretz Yisrael for two months, and I wound up as one of the original Shayoshev uh, boys. Uh, Rabbi Feifel was my cousin, and I learned there till I finished college. I got married. I still hung around the yeshiva a while. I became a uh, school psychologist, a therapist working in various organizations and um, uh, clinics. I uh, subsequently moved to Florida, where I worked in uh, the Karen Foundation and spiritual group once a week, as well as a family uh, program. Um, I ran the uh, family uh, program at the Yatskin Center um, 20 years ago. Yeah, it's a long time. For those who don't remember, there was once a Jewish rehab just for Jewish youth. Yes, and there are some people I still know in Yerushalayim that were there. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. Some of my closest friends uh, 
were there working with me and my work for them. And I give a shout out to my friend Lou Abrams, yeah. who became the director while I was running the program there. Um, after Florida, I moved to uh, back to the Five Towns uh, with some private practice work, working with Matt Dragos, working with Jax, and Mask as well. And uh, since I came to Israel about two and a half years ago, I am uh, involved in private practice work, also working with some yeshivas with kids at risk. I work in a girls' seminary, uh, running groups uh, twice a week, providing uh, guidance and uh, as well as tools for life skills. And now I'm living in Yerushalayim and um, trying to help people where I can and stay connected to my uh, people in New York as well. And you also did like, uh, didn't you do like some kind of Reiki energy training? Don't you do stuff like that? I, uh, thank you for asking. I, I didn't put that in. I, I didn't have enough time to fill that in. I am a Reiki, an Aleph Reiki master. It's a uh, degree I got performing uh, Reiki energy healing and the Jewish framework of it, nothing to do with any uh, or uh, non-Jewish uh, involvement. I ran um, for many years the meditation at the uh, Madregos um, retreat in Rosh Hashanah. I did guided visualizations and relaxation, and I'm also involved uh, in the daily practice of meditation as well in Yerushalayim. Yeah. Yoga. I think that's. Uh, I think that is the thing that I. I probably, if I had to pick one thing that I took from you, I stole from you the most. It have to be that. Uh, any any. Uh, any ability to do any of those things, guided meditation. I uh, just uh, plagiarizing you. So uh, so thank you for that. <laughs> plagiarizing me is the biggest cover in the world. Don't you quote me? Okay, so now we got to know a little bit of the. Uh, you know the. Uh, you also have four sons. You mentioned your sons. Yeah, I have four sons. You're a great dad, actually. I, I really, that's a, another thing I think I plagiarized from you. You're a great dad. You have four sons? No, I, I only have one son and one daughter, but uh, I've watched you for the last 18 years be a father, and uh, I'm friends with one of your sons, and uh, it's remarkable. Yes, I have four sons. One's uh, in, uh, living in five towns, one lives in Brooklyn, uh, one's a corporate lawyer in San Francisco, and one is a. Uh, assistant principal in Yeshiva in North Miami Beach. Well, successful, working very, very hard, while the father is uh, hardly working here in Yushalayim Baruch Okay, thank God. Uh, finally, well-deserved partial retirement. So, uh, okay, so let's get to know you. So now we know you a little bit on the, uh, the externalities, but uh, part of the, the goal of this interview, these interviews, is to, to bring to the audience um, exceptional people, people that have been successful, people have a lot to offer, um, and to get to know them on a PNIMI level, on an internal level, and then also to glean from them some really practical advice for life. Um, that's really kind of the, uh, the driving force of this interview series, as you know. So, um, so as, as the audience might have heard, if, if, if you haven't heard this before, uh, I gave you the questions ahead of time, so these are things that you've had the time to kind of think about and consider. I'm not asking you off the cuff. Um, so there's a, a, a measure... And I mentioned that because it's a measure of depth, uh, I think, to the answers. Um, so I'm really grateful to hear what you have to say and um, to hear about you. So I, the first question that I asked was, um, I asked you to think about what your most favorite place in the world is. And I asked you to be very, very specific. And the example that I use in the question always that I mention is, if you were going to pick the old city, if you were going to pick Jerusalem, which part of Jerusalem? And if you were going to pick the old city, which stone in the old city? Try to be as explicit as possible, but what would your 
favorite place be in the sense of a place where you feel most yourself or you feel most reflects you as a person or you feel most closest to your to your essence okay um first of all i want to thank you for giving me the questions beforehand when i went to college i never had the questions before <laughs> time to prepare um that was pretty easy for me uh even though uh, since uh, corona i did not go to the hotel but uh, one of my favorite places is Tayelet in Arnona that overlooks the old city from the east. Tayelet is, is an overlook? It's an overlook. It's like a promenade. And from there, you see the whole uh, the rectangle of the whole old city. You see, the, uh, you see the whole wall. You see the whole square of the Temple Mount. And uh, you see also Harazetim to the right of that. Now, why that speaks to me is that I used to go there on, on Tishabov. We did some kinas there, although I did walk around the wall many Tishabovs. But being there, you get a feeling when people were uh, made Olorego when it came to Israel three times a year, they walked in from that direction. And I would visualize the people coming with their animals, with the cabanas, walking up that whole, the whole valley and walking up into the side of the where the, uh, where the mosque, the Alaska mosque is, where the entrance was, where the mikvahs were, people would come to, to the base of mikvahs. So when I sit there and just you know, visualize and meditate and contemplate, I, I, I get in touch with what's going to be God willing. You know, being by the hotel is being up front close. You only see the wall. Here you see the whole venue of what the base of mikvahs was, the whole plateau, the whole mountaintop. And that gives me a feeling that um, that Raharazes and whatever I, I learned in you know my my learning or Navi is that when they did Olorego, that's where they came from. They didn't come from any other side. They entered the base of Mikvahs from those entrances. They had the Mikvahs and they had all the uh, the other apparatus over there passing uh, we, from there. Right, you see Ir David, and you see of course the uh, new city. But seeing that whole Temple Mount itself is something that really speaks to me. Being by the Kotel, being by the Kotel Katana, the tunnels, you're close to it there, but you don't get a, a visual. Even when you go up to the gate where you see the uh, the uh, Mosque of Omar, where the police don't let you in. But here I see the whole vi vista of the Temple Mount, the Harabaya, so to speak. And that really speaks to me. I try to go there as often as I can to walk around, just sit there and look and, and think and connect to all those thousands and millions of people that came over the years to the base of Mikdash. So, so you're, so you're looking at this overlook and you're visualizing thousands of years in the, in the past. Um, you know, the people coming up to Jerusalem, they're engaging this the ritual baths to purify themselves, to prepare for coming into the Holy Temple. And, right. and part of what you described was the fact that if you were to go into the old city and you would stand at the wall itself, or even if you were to go onto the Temple Mount, and be on the Temple Mount itself, you're very, very close, but you don't get a picture of the whole exactly. thing. So it's it's when you're in this overlook, this is just to kind of unpack what you're talking about or just try to understand, when, when you're in that overlook and you have the opportunity to see the full expanse of it and then to visualize, I guess, also what's powerful about that, what you said, but to visualize the full historical expanse, right? To kind of visualize what was happening there from a broader sense that gives you a sense of um, inspiration. Like what, what is it that you, that you draw from seeing that? 
all the davening of Ibane uh, Beis Mikdash, all the years that I've been davening and the Jewish people have been davening. You know, I think last week someone sent me a video of the mount, the whole mount, and there is some kind of graphics that they put down the new Beis Mikdash on it. It was like a graphic thing turning the current mount into the base of Mikdash with some graphics. And that's what I'm trying to visualize, be, being there, that when the base of Mikdash will be built, you can see it from there. You'll see the whole expansive beauty of it. Because I'm facing I'm facing the whole side of it. The whole You'll see the whole thing. While in Yushalayim, yes, I've been by the Kotel. I lived in the old city for a while. I've gone to the tunnels. I've gone to the, you know, the uh, Kotel Katan and opposite Kodesh Kedoshim. You go in the tunnel, then you dive. And so... You, but there's a wall there. You don't see it. But here, uh, I don't know if we'll be able to see the carbonos to see the fires, but uh, maybe to see the Mizbeach from there. The fires, what's going on in the base of Mikdash from that spot. Because you're seeing the whole Temple Mount. And you can, uh, that really speaks to me. The old city is wonderful. It's uh, up close and personal. But I don't get the flavor of being seeing the whole the, the whole vista of what the base of Mikdash was, where it was, and what it's supposed to be. And, you know, I did, over my learning, uh, my various learnings, they talked about the people bringing the Bikurim to Yushalayim and the, uh, the, the kings who were uh, not good kings stopped people from bringing Karbonos and they tried to stop people from being Olorego. So that was a really important part for me. So it's bringing to light, it sounds like it's, there's a couple things that, that uh, I tease out of that. So one thing is to bring to light some of the things that you've learned in your religious life and in your religious learning to kind of bring it to a reality. But it's also almost like envisioning what's powerful about what you said. You're almost envisioning the past and the future. You're kind of envisioning right. a, a future temple. Um, and when, and when it happened. Not to get too psychoanalytical, but do you think that do you think that somewhat relates to like the the moment of your life that you're in, kind of looking more back than meaning kind of being able to capture a vision of a whole life, of the life that you've lived, meaning instead of kind of being lost in the moment of what's going on and being, maybe being lost in the, you know, the, 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 the hustle and bustle, right? Where like now you have an opportunity to kind of sit back and really look at life in a very, very different manner. Uh part that and part to the future of, uh, of why I'm in Israel for, why I'm in Eliyahu for, why I'm here for, to be part of the Jewish people and to be, you know, connected spiritually. And it's a very spiritual, you know, I, I study Rav Cook every day and, you know, uh, I know you have a picture on your wall, but you know, you know, learning Rav Cook about the spirituality and the people and the connectedness from, not from observant, not observant, but when the base of Mikdash was there in his glory, that's what we're hoping for. And that will be the solution to our diaspora, our gullus, and the craziness in the world today. And I feel that we're closer to that now than we've ever been. And I feel that I can be part of that by, you know, uh, hoping and seeing it and, and trying to experience it the best way I can. That, that's a I, sense I, that you have that we're close that we're close to an end of a diaspora. Hundred percent. I was by the Kotel for the first time. I mentioned on. on Sunday, whatever, you know, I, I went to the tunnel to Davin. They only allowed 10 people in there at a time. I had a way to go in. And then they had all these like machitzas stopping over there. You know, it didn't feel like the Kotel. It didn't feel like the Kotel of old. But after being in Yushalayim so many years and, and summers, 
the Kotel is wonderful and it's close and, and it's the last vestige of the base of Mikdash of the wall. But seeing the whole thing at one time, you can, yeah, I can close my eyes and envision when they have all these pictures of what the base of Mikdash will look like, you, you will be able to see it from where I'm standing at the Kayala. Hmm. It's, uh, uh, there's no, it's a straight view. There's nothing uh, obstructing it. Hmm. So that really speaks to me. So uh, I asked you to think about uh, or to, to consider like a, a specific folk story or a spiritual proverb that best reflects you and the guiding principle that you take from that. That was, that was, that was easy. <clears throat> that, not because my name was Yehud Eliyahu, but um, the story of Eliyahu. And um, I, I just, um, there's a story brought down in the, in the Talmud about uh, Eliyahu was in the Shuk with Rebroka, I think his name was. And um, Rebroka asked Eliyahu Anavi, who in the Shuk is Ben Olam Haba? Who will be worthy of getting Olam Haba? And I've been in the Shuk in Yushalayim many times. I was the balloon, I was the balloon man in Yushalayim, giving out balloons there. And you know, he, he says that those two guys standing there in the Shuk that are making people happy, that are giving them support, that are bringing them shalom, those are the people in the Shuk that are people who are worthy of Molam Haba. And in the Shuk, there's a wide variety of people in Yushalayim. There are Tzaddikim, there are Hasidim, there are, you name different variations of people. But specifically, Eliyahu Navi uh, said the, those people that make people happy. And I have learned from that over the years that one of my main emphasis in life is to make people happy, to encourage them, to inspire them, to know, to give them that word that, you know, and the reason why uh, he says they have Olam Haba is that when a person is sad, a person is upset, a person is depressed, the Shekhinah is depressed and the Shekhinah is sad. So when these people are alive and give these people the chios, that brings a sh- happiness to Shechina. And that's what I do even when, and I work with people, and I, you know, at whatever, your retreats, whatever, I try to have that humor, have, try to be, you know, encourage people to make people smile. Maybe people think, man, I'm a clown sometimes, I'm poor, I do dress like a clown, but that's something that I feel is very important. And um, I just, the other day, um, uh, last Thursday, one of my closest friends in the world passed away, Rabbi Klimnik, Shai Klimnik, I dedicate whatever I'm saying to him. And um, he was that person. And I learned something in Kitzel Kuti Moran that actually brought this story down yesterday. I read the story and I went like, I can't believe it. This is, and this was his personification. He loved people. He was, made people smile and made people laugh. He sang all these things that he did is something that I try to do. I'm not a comedian, I'm not an entertainer, but in my own way, if I can make, uh, if I interact with people in the group, you know, I'll insert some humor because some people need to feel that humor. People need to feel, give something to them to live for. And maybe that one nice word you say to a person can save that person that day. And I, I've experienced that many times in my life, reaching out to people that, you know, you, you never know when that, you know, you reach out and hug someone, touch someone, smile, make them laugh. But that is the crucial thing that may be the pinnacle in saving their lives. Mm. And that's what something I, uh, and I have uh, one of my, I have a bunch of sayings. I didn't tell you, but one of my sayings that we were on my necklace is, Kol nefesh achas Yisrael, kulo. He who saves a life in Israel is as if he's saving the whole world. That's part of my mantra as well. I have a bunch of them on my on my necklace, but uh, 
that is one thing. So the story of the Yarnavi and the kind of the uh, Mishnah of who gets the Om Hava is that person that makes people smile, that enlivens them, that gives you something to live for, that could bring peace to people. So, so you're describing a story where the 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 Tana from the Talmud, the the sage from the Talmud, is um, <clears throat> uh, the sage from the Talmud is encounters uh, Elijah the prophet, and he they go into the marketplace, and he's he asks him, he wants to know who is the one that earns heaven, right? So I guess the one that's really kind of tapped into what's going on. Um, and Elijah, instead of pointing out uh, the real, real deal, right? Instead of pointing out some great sage or some righteous person, points out somebody who's cheering people up, and 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 that and that personifying like the greatest value. And and you talked about the the uh, the statement of the sages, which is that someone who saves even one life, it's as if he saved the whole world. And and you talked about, I guess, saving. Um, people from their moments of darkness. He said something else that was very powerful, which is this idea that the, the, the divine presence mirrors what each of us is feeling and experiencing. I guess the divine presence in our lives, you use the word shechina, right? So that if a person is in a place of depression, then they're, they're drawing God down into that space. So that when you elevate a person, meaning that God follows us into those dark spaces, which is, which is a very, very powerful teaching. It's a very, very powerful idea which is that when we go into our dark spaces, God comes along with us. But what that means ostensibly as a helper, as somebody, you know, forget somebody who's professionally a helper, but just being involved in being aware of other people, if we make effort or when we make effort to, um, when we make an effort to, uh, to cheer people up and to help them um, walk through their challenges. We're not only helping them, but we're actually helping lifting up the design, the divine presence in all of reality. Yes. And, and um, my learning of Rep. Cook also talks about that. He talks about in every single person, no matter what their spiritual belief is or not, there is a spark there. And he believes very strongly that that spark will be reunited and will come back to its source eventually. And we have to know that we, if we can do something to enliven that, to help that amber blow on, to give them something positive. You know, Shoma Kavak talks about that when we, when a uh, Jew walks in the street, someone should look at him and say, I want to be like that person. We have a response. I feel a responsibility that, you know, when people, you know, who look a certain way, don't act a certain way, it really hurts me. And if I can be a person who can, you know, not just do as I say, do as I live, and be that positive, and be that spiritual, and know that everyone is the same. We have the same neshama. There's no difference of who we are. We make a choice. And that thing is that uh, the you know, Baal Shem Tov was that way, Roshom was that way, Cook was that way, Rav Nachman was that way, being the Simcha. Rav Nachman talks about Simcha, Simcha, Simcha. Constantly, as I learn Rav Nachman every day. And it's about Simcha, being the Simcha, and making people happy. Do you think those and things no, are correlated, like being an example of joy and helping other people to experience their own joy? Are those like well, connected? If, those, if, if the people are so down and out and they don't know what they're doing, if you can give them something, you know, um, I've worked with people I, I know for 
15, 20 years and, and, you know, and, and I see them and they say, I remember that one time when something happened and you may have given me a hug or something. It still stays with them many years later. I'm not saying that's the cause of why their life is better now, but at that point, it stays with them. So you're saying that you're saying that part of it is not necessary that you have to make somebody happy because that's not always possible. But even being a positive example of happiness or sharing that happiness with somebody else when they're in a dark space has incredible value. Being a power of example to those people, no matter what you go through, you know, they they say the story of um, the this this mule that was about to die and they threw the mule in the well. And all the people, you know, they said they're going to bury it in the well and they're throwing sand on it. You have to bury it. And all of a sudden they hear this neighing and the sound, whatever, and people running over. And all of a sudden the mule comes out of the um, well because it didn't let itself get buried. Every time sand was thrown on it, it shook it off. And as the sand got higher, it's able to come out. So if you give someone support, even though they may not really want it, but you give them support, you can help them out of that pit of despair. And you're saying that you've seen that in your life, that you've had these kind of um, momentary or passing encounters with people that you know, and they were in dark spaces, and then you, you come back later on, and you find out that even that simple encouragement or support really, really helped them. It sticks with them, and it kind of carries them through. And even though it seems like, well, I didn't fix their whole lives... Right, but it's like the in the analogy that you use, where the mule just kind of continues to go up and up and up, and not give up and not let the the dirt go on them, and then they they're able to ascend out of the well. You're giving them some self worth that they're important to you, and you're giving them that that attention, you're giving them that love without any without wanting anything back. It's a total altruistic, reaching out your hand to help somebody. Sometimes okay. they don't want. But if they know that it's there, sometimes that thing, that thought in their mind can stay there, resonate with them when they're about to, you know, go off the ledge, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So uh, no doubt you've encountered uh, times of darkness and struggle and challenges. And um, you talked about your early life trying to find uh, the right place for yourself, uh, you know, in your search and your, I guess, in some form of diaspora, seeking your exodus to find the right place to go. Um what was an episode in your life that gave you a sense of hope or permission to have hope and optimism? Well, I'm going to talk about um, yeah, what we spoke about before. Okay, yeah. I'm going to talk about the um, my uh, Temple Israel episode. Okay. Okay. Now, this is um, about 34 and a half years ago. I had an issue with some some problem, and um, God somehow someone that one person reached out to me was what I was talking about. A person reached out to me and I had no intention of taking the person's hand or even doing it. But Hashem was able to guide and set up the scenario. And I did go to an AA meeting in Temple Israel in Lawrence 34 and a half years ago, next week, I think. And um, I walked in there and uh, I, was, I wasn't going to say that I was at the door of death, but I was just really bewildered and totally willing to give up because I just couldn't find an answer for my problem. And when I went in there the first time and uh, felt very uncomfortable, I felt like, what am I doing here uh, in a reformed temple? I'm the son of, a, of an Orthodox rabbi. I never did such a thing. When I went in there, it seems that um, the grace of God was there, but me seeing people who were, I didn't know them yet, 
but from what I heard from them at the beginning is they came back from the dead. They were happy. They lived in the darkness. They lived in despair. And I, I saw that, and I saw that. And, and then, again, someone reached out to me before I, I walked out of that meeting. And, again, my, my main uh, mantra is, the divine um, intervention in my life has been so clear to me because I was not going to stay. But in the corner of my eye, I did see someone who I knew who had a problem, and I knew he had a problem. And that enabled me to go over and say, like, oh, I took that breath. I am no longer terminally unique. I'm just like anyone else who was suffering and a person had a problem, and I was going to uh, be willing to listen to a solution to help me get my life back on, uh, on, uh, on keel. And that's what I did. And I think that's the watershed of the experience of seeing and subsequently learning what it was about and learning how many, so many thousands of people. And in my life, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, but I want to say thousands of people in my life have experienced that. And I saw that. And I was very honored and humbled by being part of those people's lives where I saw them come in and I saw the struggle they had and still being able to be optimistic and reaching out and being uh, supportive and down the line, seeing these people get married, have lives, come back to a spiritual understanding of their life, some religious, some not children, whatever. And this is, to me, is the Mason, the, the resurrection of the dead that I experienced. And uh, that, I think, was the, you know, had that not, had that not happened, had that one person not reached out to me, who knows where, I, where I'd be today. But that was the, uh, I think, the watershed of the, my experience that enabled me over the last 34 and a half years to be of service and helping people and helping myself. So you were, I mean, I know the story, but just for the listeners, so you were, you were already an adult. You already kind of had your degree and you're working as a psychologist and what you describe is very powerful. And it really relates back to two of the other things that we were talking about already and which the listeners know it's, there's always like a, an underlying theme or or two uh, in these episodes, but Part of what's very powerful is that you went looking for help, and then there were specific individuals who each individually, one was somebody who was just there at the at the AA meeting, one was somebody who reached out to you, one was somebody who took you aside to help you, but these kind of small gestures by those individuals had a tremendous impact, and that now, in the moment that you're in, in the context 34 and a half years later, Looking back, you're seeing all of the the payros, all of the fruition of those people just making those simple gestures of reaching out or making you feel welcome because all of the people that you've had that had the opportunity to help and to watch and to see. 100%. I mean, I, I, a story I had was one girl. I, um, I was the, the, the clinical, clinical director of the teen program at Jack's. We used to have retreats twice a year of teenagers who were well, with drugs, alcohol, at risk, whatever. And there was this young girl who had alcohol, whatever, and she was doing something dangerous, and we took her car keys away. It was Shabbos, whatever. And I was in the room there with her, and she's about to bolt out, and I gave her a hug. And I see this girl, I mean, I speak to her in Israel, and she says, she'll never forget that hug I gave her that, that stopped her from whatever. So whatever 
I, whatever I had to do at that point, God Hashem put me at that point at that moment. I'm not saying I'm responsible for her recovery or whatever, but I'm saying I was there. And that memory stays with her. And someone else who uh, I worked with in rehab almost 20 years ago, 18, 19 years ago, married three kids, living a wonderful life. And I worked with the person. And she remembers, she remembers me working with her. I'm not saying, I'm not saying, I'm not taking any credit myself, just to be there, to give them chizik, to give them encouragement to know that they can do it. So what gives you hope is the, is the, the power that you see in these small, or maybe not small, but kind of seemingly insignificant gestures that are moments of time within a person's life. You know, you're saying, I can't take credit for all of their success. And yet you had the opportunity to be there in that moment. And instead of retreating or instead of just kind of taking the easy way out, you leaned in, you gave her a hug when she wanted to run out and hurt herself, or you were present when they were in their, in their moments of recovery. And that now without having to take credit for anybody else's success, you can feel the, the gratitude and the thankfulness and the hope of, look at this, I can go and give somebody a balloon in the, in the, uh, in the, in the market or I can smile, give somebody a, a smile, or just be a power of example of what it means to be joyful and happy, or, um, or what it means to walk the walk, uh, and uh, in addition to talking the talk. Um, and, and you can now look back in retrospect and see the power behind that, and that gives you tremendous hope, which I think is tremendously hopeful for anybody else, because it can often seem like, well, what difference is it going to make? Right, but the answer is it gives a tremendous amount of difference. Um, the other thing that you said, which was very powerful, is that because you there's a doctrine in your life of enod movado of seeing God's the divine providence and all the different details, looking for the 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 presence of God and all the different details of your life, watching the way in which you were a channel or a messenger from God for other people in a simple way, not in some kind of like big prophetic way, but simply a smile of this, a gesture. And it, it allows you to feel like you are, you know, you are manifesting divinity in life. And that is extremely, extremely powerful. It's not like, I, it doesn't, it doesn't sound to me like you're describing yourself as some kind of like a prophet. You know, that's not what you're describing. You're describing a simple person who goes and takes simple action to help somebody else or cheer somebody else up it goes back to that story of Elijah the prophet. That's the person who's meriting heaven and maybe even heaven on earth because they are living as a part of that, you know, divine flow of goodness. I, I just want a side story comes up that um, when I was working as a psycho psychologist. I needed to be certified. So I, um, the um, people I work for the clinic suggest I go to um, social work school. So I applied to Hunter Social Work School, and uh, it was a group interview. And there were a lot of people, different working, different agencies for the city, whatever, and you know, different ethnic groups. And I'm there with the Yamaka, and you know, they. I said, no way, I'm getting in over there. And they asked me like, why I wanted to be a social social worker. I said, my father was a rabbi, and my mother was a rabbi in Brooklyn. And they always had people in our house, people, poor people. In my basement, we slept at clothes. My mother would collect clothes and give clothes to people. My father would take people into the house and to help people. And that is something that, you know, um, resonates with me. That's what I'm here for, to try to help people in, in, in my own way. And that's what, that's what I've been trying to do. That's what I try to do. And uh, 
being one of the uh, senior citizens here in this uh, Israel and being young at heart, but uh, I am one of the most senior citizens here in, in this fellowship and, and uh, in recovery and, and, and age-wise, I just see it and it just gives me such nachas to see people, to see the struggle. And, and you know, now we have this, this thing called Zoom and you see people from all over the world, some from Scotland and England and New Zealand come and you get to know them a little and you hear the struggles and you try to just give, reach out and say a nice word to them, even though you may not even speak to them. But you hear them and it resonates with me. Yeah. Okay. So uh, transitioning to the second part of the interview, uh, just to pick up some. uh, What? No break. I get a break. (laughs) So do you need a break? (laughs) So uh, transitioning to the second part of this interview about, uh, you know, something related to practical advice. I asked you to think about a daily practice, one daily practice or a habit. I'm going to guess what it is, but I'm not going to say uh, that you feel contributes to your personal success. It could be something. My answers are ready. I don't know. Maybe this one. I'm going to guess this one. A daily practice that you have that you really feel contributes to your personal success. Well, you know, um, and especially in the last four and a half months of um, COVID, they have have an eight o'clock meditation. It's a guided meditation. And he steals some of my stuff. He doesn't know that I did it. I told him I'd do it, but he does it. I thought. (laughs) And I actually sent I sent him one of mine, and uh, it's basically he talks a little. He's a, Jew, a Jewish guy, things are from guy, and um, he goes to provide a visualization and something. He, he has a theme what he talks about. I've been doing that for the last um, you know four and a half months. It gives me the um, it gives me the opportunity to center myself. No matter what time I go to sleep, I go at two three o'clock in the morning. I'm up at eight o'clock on my couch right over there. And I sit there and, uh, you know, I even write, I even take notes on it and I'm, I'm supposed to rewrite them, but I didn't do that yet because it's so many months where I have to go on and rewrite them in the book. That's one of the things that really helps me a lot. And this is something that you said something, I don't know if this is the answer to something else in, in the, uh, in the past, whatever, but what I do on a daily basis is that, you know, um, you know, especially now we're praying, I'm praying at home because of the shuls, whatever, and my, my prayer may not be as whatever, I try my best, but I, ha- uh, I have this list of people who, family members and friends and people who are in need of health issues, people who are in need of um, finding their soulmates, people who have very, going through a lot of things, plus my family, and every single day, uh, especially I mean, in the morning when I pray, I go through this list and I go down the list. Sometimes I scan it. Sometimes I go each one and I, I may be presumptuous, but I, I try to pray for what I think they need. I know some people need, you know, you know, parnasa. some people have health issues, some people have emotional issues. I try to at least, you know, connect to them and not that I'm a hoarder, but when I have a friend, the people, a person I'm connected to, they stay with me. I don't, even though I may not see these people, not speak to them for months or whatever, but they're part of my life. That's something I connect to them. Mm-hmm. And I have them in my mind. I have them in my heart. And I know that they're needy. And, and it helps me get out of myself because I'm, I'm, I, I live by gratitude. I have a gratitude book. That, uh, yeah, that's what I thought you were going to pick. Yeah, you see that? I, uh, <laughs> I was like, there's no way he's not picking his gratitude book. I was like, 
Yudi, it's uh, it's it's unbelievable. I, I can report I can report dutifully that uh, Yudi has kept a gratitude book as long as I know him. That's a, that's that it's was not a joke. I didn't have the visual aid here, but uh, I I realized I have. If you, you know, I'm renting an apartment. One of my most prized possessions is I have a gratitude book similar to this. This is a more for the last over ten years. Every single day does not go through with me. I write a gratitude book. It's not in my mind. I wake up in the morning. I know last night was finished. As soon as I do something in the morning, whether it's meditation or speaking to someone or going to a meeting or something happens, it goes into my gratitude book. After I can tell, and I, I joke around if I tell who I spoke to and what I did. It's not a journal. It's just gratitude because I think my life today is a life of gratitude. That I just what I went through. I'm talking about you know younger and you know, first got married, had illnesses, whatever I went through, and I, I live a life of gratitude. And that it, that helps me on a daily basis. I cannot go to if I leave my gratitude book and say, "Oh, I didn't do it today. I can't go to sleep." And I just and and what I do is that every Friday night before I go to sleep, I reread the whole week. So no matter what I'm going through, I do that. And uh, you may ask some. Is this what he has? No one knows about this. That's a different question. <laughs> I don't know. this question? Yeah. The same same question. Yeah. 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 Okay, and on each page, this is what I say. Animamin vashkocha pratis, I believe in divine intervention. Chesed keal koliyom, chesed should be with God every day. Enod muvado, and next line, animakabal atzmi, I accept upon myself mitzvahs afterach kamocha, the mitzvah of loving every person in the world without anger, without jealousy, without um, hate. Every page goes on that. Wow. And when I do that, and that's something that, you know, I don't hate anybody. I'm not jealous. I don't, I'm not jealous of anyone. I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not angry. But I do that because this is something that gets me to, when I go out in Jerusalem, I see people who are, and I sat in the shook today, you know, what a wide variety of people over there. They do whatever you want. I don't care who you are, what you are. I, I look, I like to look at people. I have to, you know, just to get, the bewilderment of so many different people all in this country, whether Jewish or not, and I have to love everybody and not judge anybody. And I work very hard not to judge anyone. I, I say this, all of you may have heard this. I had this pin on my desk for many years in my office in the school. It said, he who judges doesn't matter. He who matters doesn't judge. And one of my greatest fears is I'm going to come up after 120 and they're going to ask me, did you judge somebody? I, I'm going to go, I don't want that. There's something, I'm not a tzaddik. I try to be righteous and try to you know, be God-fearing, but to go over and judge someone to say, look at him, what he did, you know, I don't want that. Mm -hmm. I don't care how they look, you live your life, tattoo, not tattoo, yarmulke, makes no difference to me. Mm -hmm. I try to live that, and by writing it every day and trying to live that way, it's a very freeing way. So if I asked you to think about, uh, to pick one thing about one relationship that makes that relationship awesome and work, and what are the steps you take to foster that relationship? Okay, that was kind of uh, easy for me, hard, but easy. My uh, my friend, Rabbi Shia Klimuk, the rabbi of Rochester, um, in New York, who just passed away on Thursday, he was my dearest friend. I met him in 1963 in high school, and uh, we got married, and you know, he's at, he was at some of my weddings 
and um, he um, then he moved to Little Rock, and then he moved to Rochester. And uh, basically, I would meet him in uh, Israel almost every summer. I would come for the last 20 years, including the summer. And we became friends with everybody. In the last four years, he, he became sick. He had a bone marrow transplant. And it was very rough for him. And I made a commitment to call him every day. Some days he didn't pick up the phone, whatever. I tried to call him every single day. And then when he went into, you know, had hard times, I would pump him up. I mentioned a gratitude book to him. And uh, we were yedidin nefesh. I mean, he was there in my trials and tribulations in life. And um, he was supportive, and I was supportive to him. And then Nevech, his wife, went into a coma about a year ago, and he was really broken. And I would speak to him, and like the Eliyadu I would try to pump him up. And at, at the end of the conversation, we had, we had a certain thing that only three people in the world knew about this. We ended the conversation, no matter what, with that, whatever the phrase it was, and we ended it with a laugh, with a smile. And, you know, you know, he's a friend. I'm not sitting uh, in a veilist, but I feel I lost that connection closer than my biological brothers a million times. And uh, my commitment was to be there for him. And, you know, his children, you know, I only knew about, I knew three of his children. You know, I, I wasn't looking for them to, Tell me what you know, what I how important you know. It's good to, to know that, but just because I was there for him, that you know that that, that I was con, con, could have been considered his best friend and know his his pain he went through. But the last time I spoke to him, you know, he could barely barely speak. We picked up the phone. It was Arab Shabbos, and you know, Shkocha Pratis is in my life. Is that um, last Wednesday, uh, his son was in the hospital with him, and I called his son. And the son put the phone to his ear. And I, don't, I didn't write it. I thought I wrote it down, but I know what I told him, how much I loved him and how important he is and how, how much you know, we want him to get better. And that was my connection. And that was my soul connection. If, you know, I'm, I'm not a possessive person. I don't control people. I don't control anything, at least little or myself. But when, I, when I'm connected, that's what I, really, I think uh, my job is to connect to somebody, to help someone to be there. And that was really, you know, every place I go in Yushalayim, whether the restaurant or the old city or, you know, I bring up memories of, of, of being there with them and the laughter and, and just the connectedness. And that was some, for some people, it's very hard to be connected. Uh, you know, I'm not married now, but people, even people who are married and people that work with people, it's very hard to be so connected on a soul level. But that's something I was with him. You said something interesting. That, that You said it in passing, but there was like a particular funny, humorous saying that you would say every time you ended the phone call that would allow you to end the conversation in humor? Yeah. That's such an interesting little trick. That's so cute. That's uh, so interesting. Well, you know, I, I, I can do this because he's not around anymore. The other person's not going to know this. But, uh, no, you don't have to say I, if you don't want to. <laughs> I wasn't asking what it was. I, hey, uh, but it's just something, um, it, 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 this is 1963. How many years is that? It's a long time. Yeah, it's a while. <laughs> well, 50, three of us got 60 years in school, and we said like you know uh, we had a, we were really close to have a bond that every time we see each other we're going to greet each other like a high sign or something you know, the high sign like these fraternities have and that I don't know who came up with this but uh, the refrain was I'll do the refrain was uh, I'll do because this is all in Shia's memory the refrain is we went covered one eye and we said we said, remember, 
the sun is hot, and then the refrain was aku aku. That was it. Every time I spoke to him, if he could barely talk, if his wife was having an operation, if he was going through his bone marrow transplant, whatever, chemotherapy, we almost killed him. Every conversation ended. Either he would say, Yuri, remember? And we would say that. And I would say it to him. It's like, who's going to catch who to say it first? Hmm. And that was ending the conversation with that phrase. I, I, I think I, I may have said that the last time I spoke to him on the phone. I, I may have said that. But definitely the time before I, I did that. Wow. That's something, it's, it's a connectedness that no one in the world has. The other guy has to be, I'm, he's, I'm not in contact with this guy, but I did write him about that. And that's the connectedness that, you know, that the Nishambas are connected. There's, there's, there's a soul connection over there. Wow. And for many, many years, I didn't see him. He was in Rochester, and if he come to New York, I would see him in New York, a call here or there. But he got caught up in his thing, and I got caught up in my thing. But in the last four years for sure since uh, he got sick. It was, you know, I, I, I you know, for him, still diving for his wife, whatever, but um, that was something that uh, I'm very proud that I can make that commitment uh, to do that and to be there and to be there if someone needs something, if I can do it, I, I you know, I, I would do that for somebody. Okay, so... Uh... <clears throat> We'll, uh, we'll just uh, do a lightning round, the last two questions. Uh, I'll combine lightning them, round. give you an opportunity to, to answer each. So I asked you to think about a, a practice or a mantra that specifically helps you to stay grounded. And what are the steps that you take to recharge or handle like when you feel burnt out or emotionally down? Lightning round. Right <laughs> He's got to put it. Can you read that? <laughs> for, the, for the listeners, his yarmulke says, Enod Movada. Hold on a second. Don't go away. I try to get these as presents. I got it from a person. I went to the dentist's office, and he had his daughter had an organization. I said in my writing my book. So it's a it's a it's a mug for the listeners. They have a mug that says Hashkacha Pratis, which means divine um, intervention or divine watching or engagement. Thank you, Hashem. Okay, they'll be happy about that. We could. <laughs> And I have Ain Ode Movado stickers around my apartment. I have them on my windows. I have them on pictures. I have Ain Ode Movado. And um, I feel that it's just that it's you know my life, what I'm doing here, how I got here. And, so and it's the little it's the little reminders you leave around your life and around your house and around you know on everything. It, breathe it. I see it. Do you think seeing it so present, like on a hat or on a yarmulke or on? Uh, uh, a mug, like it makes a difference having those reminders so present all the time. Yeah, also, as a, a bracelet says, "Trach good, sein good." I think it would be good. This is I had this for years. I mean, it's it's. I'm not obsessed. I don't. It's not. It's not a. Um, it's just when I see it, it just it just reinforces. So, but as a psychologist and a meditation person, a, a meditation trainer, you think like that. Does that really help? Like if somebody's skeptical of those kind of things, wearing a little band or having a saying on your cup, you really think like that, does that really help? Like, do you find it helps you like having those things or is it just cutesy nonsense? I find it as a reminder, as a reinforcer, as a, um, as seeing it. I think uh, I'm trained to see the goodness in the world, what Shem has done. And sometimes you can't, 
you, you're foggy, your glasses are these are clean, you need to clean your glasses. But when I do it, I see that, I see I see what the truth is. I see the truth is that I'm here. It's all it's all comes from God. It's the power greater than myself. It's it's the connection, it's the constant uh, conscious contact with them. And this, you know, people can go, I don't need this, I can have a conscious contact, but unfortunately, and you know, in the mind, like when I try to dive in sometimes, my mind goes wherever it goes. So this gives me a focus to realize that when I sit sit here at the table and I just look up and I see those, you know, uh, you're with me, all these things help me be focused, helps me understand that, yes, it's, I'm only here to be of service, to try to leave this world after 120 and make some impact. I'm not going to make an impact like be, you know, like have 500 people and then, then testimony. I wasn't a rabbi of a community. I'm not a rabbi. It's just that I, I want to connect to people. And this helps me by, by knowing that my spirit, Hashem's spirit is in me. And uh, that's what I do. So, so, I mean, one of the powerful messages that you're, that's coming across is, and this plays out in a lot of the themes of what, what, what we've talked about this morning, this afternoon, this evening for you. You can't minimize or take for granted the impact of these kind of small reminders or efforts, a small hug, uh, uh, a nice uh, being a power of example, uh, a saying or a slogan, putting it in your, eye, in your mind's eye, writing it down in your gratitude book on a daily basis, even if it's not like, you know, you, you talked about like, oh, I'm not a jealous person. I'm not overly jealous or judgmental, but I want to remind myself on a daily basis to keep myself in that space, that those kind of things are the most important things in your life. Those are kind of the most powerful, the things that perhaps seem like it's silly or that we could easily take for granted are often some of the most important. And And even though it's not like as, I don't know what the word would be, it's not as glitzy or glamorous as you know, a 500 person congregation or testimonials. But at the same time, there's tremendous power in that. And there's tremendous power in walking in the street and meeting somebody uh, who you haven't seen in 20 years. And you know that you were there for them when they, when, when they needed you and they can express that to you or an old friend who you can just make a decision because they're in a tough time in their life to like lean into that relationship and be present for them and how a soul level of connection can just be revealed and fostered and built in such an intense and deep way to feel like I'm, I really have a best friend in the whole world. And they can feel that way and their children can know that. And that's incredibly powerful and that you get to live with that, that you were there present for another human being in that way um, is very, very powerful. And it's, I think it's, it's powerful because, because of how often our nature is to take those things for granted. Right. It's something, uh, and again, it's about left. It's about being there. It's you know, I, I've come to understand that I can't do it for everybody, but uh, you know, I've been I've been around the block, so to speak. Thank God, and know that you know you're never ever alone. The person feels they're alone. It's because you know they don't pick up the phone and know there's someone on the other end of the phone or someone else that would listen to them, care about them, and not even have even the the answers. I don't have all the answers. But to listen to someone, to be a, a loving, caring ear, and to be present. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Yidi. I really appreciate you joining us. It's a beautiful episode. I hope this doesn't go viral. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I love you, brother. Thank you, Malcolm. Thank you, Thank you.
Thanks for listening to the Consciously Podcast. Consciously is a project of The Living Room, which is a division of Our Place New York, and made possible by the kindness of the Capellius family, in memory of Tsipora Basravaro. The host of Consciously is Menachem Posnansky, and produced by Chaim Cohn, and our trusted assistant to the regional co-host, Maya Hanekman. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe on Apple or wherever else you get your podcasts. We sincerely welcome and appreciate your feedback. Please feel free to email us at consciously62 at gmail.com or on our Instagram and Facebook pages. Hello.